All right, Nick. So, um, you know, I feel like as I'm getting to the end of my fellowship, I still feel like I need to go back and remind myself about all of the general OBGYN topics as well as some primary care stuff. So how do I do that? Yeah. You know, our friends at the OBG Project actually have a new sister website that's come out called the PC Med Project or the Primary Care Med Project um, that focuses in on a lot of things from medicine that we may have forgotten and probably that our family medicine and internal medicine listeners completely remember, but they just need a better resource to be able to get those bullet-pointed summaries. Yeah, as I'm looking through this website, I see a ton of great information. It looks like they've also broken this down into specialty areas, so not just your normal alerts and things like that, but also looking at review of cancer screening, if you need to like look at some endocrine topics, even some dermatology topics. This is really great for anyone who wants to review some of your basic primary care subjects. So definitely check out the PC Med Project at pcmedproject.com. But if you're an OBGYN resident, remember too that you can get the OBG Project and OBG First as well as that resident core curriculum absolutely free heading to our website at www.creagsovercoffee.com, checking out our sidebar and getting signed up. Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Over Coffee. Coffee. So today we have two very special guests with us to talk to us about one of the new SMFM special statements called a critical examination of abortion terminology as it relates to access and quality of care from the Reproductive Health Committee. So with us today are Drs. Carrie Huser and Dr. Sarah Horbath. First, Dr. Huser is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Utah. Um, welcome, Dr. Huser. Thank you. Excited to be here and talk about our paper. And the next, Dr. Horvath um, is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Penn State. So welcome, Dr. Horvath. Thank you so much for having us. All right. And then you both come with this document and to us from SMFM and specifically from what is going to be termed ultimately the Reproductive Health Committee. Um, We're just putting in a plug for involvement within SMFM, first of all, both as MFM fellows and then for those of you who are residents, fellows, junior faculty listening to the podcast, um, this is going to be a new committee that is going to be accepting folks um, in this newest application cycle. So definitely head to the SMFM website if you're interested in checking that out. But let's kind of start off um, with a question, and I'll pose it to you first, Dr. Huser. You know, let's set the stage. A lot of our listeners already know a good bit, probably, about the history of abortion in the United States after Roe v. Wade and then the recent Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization. Um, but really, can you take us through just sort of the background and other things surrounding how the Dobbs decision really changed the political landscape of abortion in the United States? Certainly. Yeah, it's really been a cataclysmic shift. Um, As most of your listeners probably know, um, the fundamental right to abortion, at least prior to viability, was established by two court cases um, a number of years ago, first um, Roe in 1973, um, and later Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. After those were established, we saw um, a number of what are called trap laws. So we saw um, people trying to roll back that right, but 
ultimately the fundamental right to have an abortion was generally preserved. Dobbs changed all that. So as your listeners no doubt know, um, that decision said that people do not have a fundamental right to end their own pregnancies based on the current court's reading of the national constitution. What this means is that all abortion regulation gets returned to the individual state level. That gets really confusing because now you have 50 different sets of abortion laws, 50 different sets of restrictions. Even restrictive states are not all the same. They have different gestational age limits. They have different requirements. They have different exceptions. And all access states are not the same. Some of them still do have gestational age limits. Some of them have reason bans. So it's highly variable based on where you live. Um, so now what many of us see as this as a fundamental right, even if the court disagrees with us, is highly dependent or access to that is highly dependent on where you live. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think this article specifically goes into the importance of abortion terminology because like you said, Dr. Huser, there are 50, now 50 different sets of laws regarding abortion. So for our listeners, um, would the two of you mind, first of all, you know, defining what we should mean by abortion in the medical literature and then contrast it with how abortion is used in law or policy or how potentially lay people may define what abortion is. And then maybe even how we in medicine, I, I said should, because how we in medicine may perpetuate issues with how we talk about abortion. Let's start with the medical definition. So most people in medicine uh, define an abortion as an intervention that would be intended to terminate a pregnancy so that it doesn't involve a live birth. But as we point out in the paper, this actually does leave some people out of the rubric because there are uh, occasional patients who are pursuing abortion care specifically so that there may be a chance of some neonatal life, even if that would be incredibly limited in order to have comfort care, because that's the thing that is actually the most in keeping with their own core values. And so um, if we think about this as a better definition, I think that we could think of it as ending a pregnancy without the intention of sustained postnatal life. That would really include both the more traditional medical definition and also those, uh, those folks that, that really are looking for comfort care at that time. So that's medicine. But when we contrast that with the way that abortion care is defined in law and in policy, like Dr. Huser said, we have 50 different, different definitions from 50 different states. Um, and most people out in the world, most lay people, don't have a very good understanding of what abortion care really is. So their thinking about it, their definitions of it, are really defined by these partisan and political meanings of the word. Instead of thinking about abortion as healthcare, the way those of us who provide this care do until they need it themselves. And then they can't understand why the health care that they need is being thrown into this political and partisan environment and why the definitions from health care and policy don't seem to jive for them. I always say that if you put 10 people in a room and ask them to define what a quote unquote elective abortion would be, you would get 11 different answers. And yet people think that whatever 
their definition of elective is, is everyone's definition. And that's why it's really not a useful term. Okay, so you'll you'll hear this term bandied about again in policy um, and in law. More often, they do it the other way, so that in uh, legal contexts, they may have quote unquote exceptions. Those exceptions are also and similarly not clearly defined. And again, the lay language really starts to creep in. So that uh, the language that's used in these policies is restricting the care that we're able to provide, but not in a way that is consistent or easily understandable. A couple of things about that. So when we think about the term abortion, we also include spontaneous abortion, which the lay public thinks of as miscarriage. The laws that we're talking about in general do not regulate care for miscarriage, but they do regulate care for quote unquote induced abortion, therapeutic abortion, elective abortion, again, on and on and on to different layers of complexity. You can see how this is playing out in the recent court case in Texas, where five women are taking the state of Texas to task because it's not clear what the definition of a medical exemption is. When is a maternal life threat great enough to constitute an exception under Texas law? Is the definition of the providing physician enough? Is the definition of the patient enough? Or are you now going to have to be subject to any person's definition of what a maternal life threat might be. You can see how this becomes very problematic very quickly. Lawyers, even within the same state policy context, may interpret these laws and these definitions in new and different ways. So even a person who goes to one hospital versus another, both within driving distance, might see that uh, the 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 MFMs, the OBGYNs, the complex family planning folks at those hospitals interpret those laws differently, and therefore their access to care changes depending on which hospital they go to. Then you have to add the complexity of insurance, and insurance has their own definitions and what applies. And so somebody has to jump through the hoops of not only the state-level definition of abortion, but the institutional hospital level of a definition of abortion. And then finally, their insurance carrier's definition of abortion care and whether or not it's covered and in what circumstances. No, I mean, I think there you've laid out a really excellent case for why we need to have standardized terminology um, regarding abortion care. This is just something that gets really, really confusing. And then, as you've mentioned already with the political ramifications, gets really, really charged really, really quickly um, and makes it difficult for folks who are trying to interpret these laws and provide care at the same time to do what they do best in providing care. I kind of want to jump a little bit from that case, though, to ask you a little bit more specifically about examples of laws or policies that potentially use a quote-unquote abortion or define it in a way that is more different from the medical literature. And, and give us some other examples of how that can be dangerous or confusing for, for a practitioner. I think in this current world, the definition of the exception of maternal life threat 
from abortion law is probably the one that is the most difficult to interpret and has the biggest ramifications for both patients and providers of this care. So in many places, lawyers who are risk averse are helping to make this decision. So does maternal life threat mean they're currently imminently dying, as in the case of sepsis? If you meet SIRS criteria, is that enough or not enough? How far from viability do you have to be to act? Is it different at 17 weeks and at 23 weeks, right? For a, a, something in a different context, you know, if you have somebody with a 40% risk of death, like from pulmonary hypertension, which we generally would say abortion care is highly recommended for these patients, right? Does everyone have to meet that 40% threshold under state law or is a 10% threshold enough? Is a 5% threshold enough? And who gets to decide? There are some states in which even an ectopic pregnancy can be considered an abortion just because of the way that the laws are written. And again, I'm not a lawyer, but I know that I have uh, colleagues in, in some states that are really struggling because even ectopic pregnancy care feels risky. And many people are then not providing that care, and it's putting pressure on the few providers left who are willing to provide that care. We've talked a little bit about insurance as well. So when you think about something like Medicaid and the Hyde Amendment, where you have federal regulations and state regulations that will allow you to pay for abortion care when it's required by maternal life threat, rape, or incest, some states will also allow it for other reasons. But you'll note that fetal anomalies are not in that list. So many Medicaid patients, even if they meet the sort of exceptions for their state abortion laws, they may not meet the exceptions for their insurance, and they may end up with a very large bill. I think these various definitions, to add on to what Sarah said, really highlight the problem with politicians trying to practice medicine. We use one example in the paper of the way in which abortion is defined in the state where I live, which is Utah. Um, and while we're working to change that definition, the current definition actually would include induction of labor at term to deliver a live baby that's going home. It's such a broad definition that it, it actually doesn't even mean anything. Um, and I think that that is one of the things that we, that we struggle with trying to interpret these laws and one of the things that I continually point out to politicians, which is that these issues are just so nuanced and individual that they are really not amenable to legislation and regulation in the way that they want to do it. Um, you know, I think one of the things that you guys pointed out in this article that I thought was really interesting, especially in light of how there are so many different interpretations of what abortion means according to the law, is that you know, OBGYNs, we as OBGYNs and, you know, MFMs certainly sometimes become these so-called gatekeepers of abortion care, um, as is, as is uh, written in the article. Can you explain what you mean by that and, and how that can impact, you know, patient care and also how that can impact provider decision-making? Yes, thanks for that question. Um, so the gatekeeper question is, um, is an important one. What we mean by gatekeepers is that MFM physicians in particular, uh, often, and OBGYNs in general, are often the final decision makers because of the way laws are written 
of who gets abortion care and who doesn't. To be very clear, none of us want to be in that position. I do not want to be deciding who gets care and who doesn't. I want the patient to decide what care they need. But we can use, for example, state laws that have, in my state, for example, we can do an abortion if a um, fetus has a diagnosis that is uniformly lethal. And it has to be signed as universe, uh, uniformly lethal by two maternal fetal medicine physicians. That's actually written in the law. So then it becomes up to us to kind of decide who meets that criteria and who doesn't. And as you both know, while lethal seems like it should be a unequivocal term, it very much is not. And so people come to us and they say, you know, is this good enough? Like, and I don't want to be in that position and none of us should be in that position. It should be the patient making the decision as to what what level of um, risk they want to take on and kind of what their ultimate goals for care are. So not only is it a legal problem, um, but as Sarah alluded to earlier, there are also individual insurance and um, hospital regulations. So while you may have a state that allows more unrestricted access, you may have abortions um, that are regulated at the institutional or hospital level or at the insurance access level. And again, those tend to be things that often MFMs would be making the diagnosis for. So maternal life threat, um, risk to major bodily function, um, fetal grave abnormality. Um, and then that kind of dictates care, even if it's something that's allowed at the state level as to what the access really is. Um, and that's not a position that I think is very appropriate for a positive um, patient-physician relationship. You know, we're all trained to, and I think ethically bound, you know, to talk patients through the nuance of their diagnosis and help them understand the details and explore their values with them and help come up with a treatment plan that makes perhaps a difficult situation at least the most in their control and meeting their values to the best way that we can. And these laws and regulations make it such that we can't do that. And that's a very, that's a very bad position for us to be in as physicians and even more important, it's harmful for patients. Yeah. And even just to, you know, flip that to the other side from this discussion about lethality, you know, where I am in Washington, there's a law on the books that's concerning the concept of viability, right? Um, and in places where I have practiced, that viability standard has also kind of been a, a different line in the sand or a not totally clear line in the sand on where that is. Um, you all in this paper discuss the viability standard because it is something, again, that, that does get a lot of say. And some people believe that that is a very moderating position on abortion to take. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about kind of your concerns regarding the viability standard? Yeah, so it's helpful to understand a little bit of the history here, too. So the Roe decision split pregnancy up into trimesters. Um, and then the Casey decision in 1992 preserved the right to have abortion prior to quote unquote viability. So that became kind of the ceiling, sort of like the best that we thought that we could get. That became the quote unquote right, the right to end a pregnancy prior to viability. 
And we got kind of stuck defending this line. And what happened is that no one thought very hard about it for a long time. Um, as you said, viability seemed like a reasonable standard, seemed like a you know good middle ground. Maybe we can all live with that. But when you dig down into it, as you all know, as MFMs, viability is not a single point in time. Viability is highly dependent upon not only gestational age, but fetal weight, underlying fetal condition, where you are in the world, what resources are available to you, many, many other things. And so while the original court may have interpreted or meant for us to take those things into consideration, that is not how it was implemented. And what it really turned into was gestational age bans. Furthermore, it is inconsistent with the concept of a fundamental right to say that you have that right one day and you don't have it the next day. Um, that's not how rights really work. And of course, there are limits on all rights. You know, even basic ones, freedom of speech, freedom of press, you can't just say anything that you want. There are certain limitations. Um, but it's nonsense to say that your right literally changes from day to day. So we would prefer um, that the concept of viability as a point at which that right is defined, that we move away from that. And again, I think we got stuck in that rut because that's what the court kind of gave us. Um, but I think we need to think harder about that. One of the main, maybe only good things to have come from this overturn of Roe and Casey is that we can imagine something better. We can imagine something that is not restricted by those things and that really takes patient considerations um, and their wishes into um, consideration and takes into account the nuance of every individual pregnancy that really cannot be legislated or um, put into um, kind of individual piles or boxes. Yeah, I think, you know, all these points that you're kind of giving us are really great at, uh, surrounding how language is so important to abortion care and to how not just the law, but how we define abortion as well. Um, the last part of this statement, you guys talk about something called the deservedness hierarchy. And I wanted to highlight this a little bit and ask about this a little bit more because I think this is sometimes a fallacy that I think we even as medical professionals fall into in the way that we describe certain types of abortion. So can you guys talk a little bit more about what you mean by deservedness hierarchy and how that affects patient care? Absolutely. Because abortion care itself and the language surrounding abortion care are both stigmatized uh, and can also be stigmatizing when used in the context of providing this medical care, people will often start to create euphemisms around it. They will find ways to use different language, whether for patient comfort, for their staff comfort in order to navigate institutional policy or state level policy. If you can call something two different things and one of those things is abortion and is stigmatized and the other is something else, in most cases, people are gonna go the path of least resistance and use the words that are less stigmatizing in the moment. The problem is that over the longer term, what you're actually doing is siloing that care and you're chipping away and chipping away and chipping away and trying to get to this point of what, again, what do we mean by abortion care and who gets to decide and whose definition are we going to use? 
We also know that whenever things are unclear like this, when they need to be navigated, they are going to be unequally applied and we're going to end up really deepening the inequities in access to care. Who gets to thread that needle? Who gets to be the exception or the euphemism? And who gets turned away because their care is still deemed abortion care? That's what we mean by the deservedness hierarchy, right? We also have a present patient bias where we're really, really well-intentioned as physicians. We want to help the person sitting in front of us Every single one of us feels that way, right? You have a patient in front of you, they need care. You're gonna do everything you absolutely can to get them the care they need. But on the back end, you may be increasing that stigma and making it that much harder for your future patients to access the care that they need. Now, um, this has been a really fascinating conversation with the two of you. And I want to be sensitive to the facts that we're getting close to the time that we have with you. Um, when Faye and I do these podcasts, you know, we usually close out with trying to, to summarize some high points of the day. But I want to, number one, say to our listeners, we'll have a link to Dr. Huser, Dr. Horvath, and the committee's um, paper on our website for the show notes for this episode. And then number two, turn it to you guys really to, to close us out on this. And from the perspective of the majority of our listeners, the the residents, the fellows, the the junior faculty, um, what are the advice or major impressions to take home um, now in navigating wherever you are in your career in this post Dobbs era, um, and kind of in light of what you guys have written or what you're passionate about in this subject? I would say, first of all, please read the paper. I think there's a lot of interesting nuance there that we can't capture in this short interview, although we're very grateful to be here. I would also say, spend a little bit of time alone with yourself and thinking about it. The time to make the decisions around the best ways to communicate with your patient are not when you're thrown into a case that is going to be difficult for you and difficult to navigate. So spend a little bit of time really thinking about this on the front end. Um, Language is incredibly important. And so you have to think in advance about the best ways to discuss this with your patients, with your team, and with your administration in order to be able to provide the best care in the most settings. I would absolutely echo what Sarah said. Um, We tried not to be too prescriptive in the paper but to encourage people to consider some of these concepts um, and consider incorporating some of the language that we suggest. I would also say on another note, um, in terms of the post-Dobbs world in general, I think a lot of people think that their individual actions don't make a big difference, but that's really wrong. You can individually actually really make things better at your institution level, for your individual patients at your state level, even larger, you have more power than you think you do. Um, And I would just really encourage people who are feeling helpless to look for ways to do that. And there are lots of papers out there about that. And again, another plug for the Reproductive Health Committee, that's a great way to start. And SMFM also has um, a website. So their Reproductive Health Committee has a website that has a lot of links about things that you can start doing. Um, they have a blog for people to contribute to or read. So if you're looking for a place to start, you want to do something, you're not sure, I would recommend that highly. 
Well, amazing. Thank you again so much, Dr. Huesner and Dr. Horvath, for coming onto this podcast and sharing your expertise uh, about this important paper uh, that has come out with SMFM. So thank you once again for your time. Thank you so much for having us. This was great. Thank you. All right. Well, I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Kriags Over Coffee. guys if you enjoyed the podcast today head over to itunes spotify google play whatever your podcatcher is and give us a five-star rating and review you can find us on social media on twitter at kriogsovercoff1 at facebook and instagram at kriogsovercoffee and if you want to support the show you can go ahead and go onto our patreon and make a donation to us that's at www.patreon.com slash kriogsovercoffee we have show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and that rosh review question of the week on our website kriogsovercoffee.com and if you have suggestions for this show, a correction, or just want to say hi to us, go ahead and email us at kriogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 